0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, October the 15th, 2023. Uh, History is a funny thing. We always assume we understand it as it unfolds. We always assume we're on the edge of history, that we're involved with events that are shaping history, but often I think we get those events wrong today. For example, I'm sure most people assume that what's happening in Gaza will be viewed in 100 years' time as critical. I wonder whether that's the case. Perhaps there's something else going on that we know nothing about, but will shape the next 100 or 200 years more profoundly. Take, for example, 300 or just over 300 years ago, there was a battle called the Battle of Cape Lopez. I have to admit, I've never heard of it. It it was fought. um, It was a, a battle over piracy. It was fought off the coast of Gabon, West Africa in 1722. And my guest today believes that this may indeed have been a battle that shaped the next 300 years in many ways more profoundly than much of what was taken for granted in 1722 was the critical events. Uh, This is bound up in a new book from my guest, uh, Angela C. Sutton, Pirates of the Slave Trade, the Battle of Cape Lopez and the Birth of an American Institution, She Suggests. Uh, that we were on the edge of history back then. Angela is joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. So, Angela, tell us about this Battle of Cape Lopez and why, in your view, it was such a significant event, even though most of us have never heard of it.
1: Sure, yeah. Um, So, at the Battle of Cape Lopez, we have two factions that have been circling each other for over a year and a half off the coast of West Africa. We have the pirate Black Bart and this fleet that he had collected over the course of devastating the coast. And then you have Captain Chaloner Ogle of the British Navy um, and and his seamen, many of whom were impressed, um, who who met him, who cornered him at this critical juncture and were able to completely devastate the pirates many the vast majority of the pirates were hanged um, as soon as they made it to cape coast for a kangaroo trial um those pirates who were african of african origin they were sold into the slave trade without further questions um a scant handful made it up to the uk for trial um but the most important thing that happened with this battle is that you know for for about 10 years toward that end, end stage of the golden age of piracy, um, all the pirates who had been plaguing the Caribbean were chased by pirate hunters to West Africa. Um, and so they devastated the slave trade and brought it almost to a standstill. Um, and this was, you know, in the 1710s, 1720s, right when this demand for free enslaved labor is ramping up in the Americas, in the Caribbean and the British North American territories in South America. Um, and so. Many different European nations were sort of struggling with how to how to address this, and Britain had the largest navy at the time and were able to send out a fleet. Um They also sent out a fleet to take care of the East Indian piracy at the same time, which I talk about in the book because it was threatening to do the same thing in the East Indies as Black Bart and his pirates had done in the West Indies. Now, because of this battle, um suddenly, the the west coast is free again of pirates and enslavers, slave traffickers who are able to come in from Europe can take advantage of this and rebuild the trade. Um, And so after this period in time, after the Battle of Cape Lopez in 1722, what you see is this massive increase in the slave trade um, and captive Africans being pulled out of West Africa um, in exponential rates from there on um, to create this institution called chattel slavery, which was essentially the slavery that the British Empire had created and and defined, um, which was very different from the types of slavery that were in place at the time.
0: So when we talk about slavery, of course, it's very hard not to turn it into a, a heated, usually an overheated moral discussion. Obviously, everyone is profoundly offended with it, particularly these days. But what you're saying or what you seem to be saying in Pirates of the Slave Trade is that it wasn't a pro versus anti-slavery debate or a pro versus anti-slavery issue. What was determined at the Battle of Cape Lopez was a certain kind of slavery. This, what you call, what historians call chattel slavery. What was the alternative to chattel slavery? That was the more historic version of of slavery, which had existed ever since perhaps the beginning of time.
1: Right, right. Um, All of the slavery that had occurred prior to the Battle of Cape Lopez um, was inspired by the models of ancient Rome. And so under these ancient Roman models, Um, of course, it was still slavery, right? Like people still had their rights significantly truncated and still had their labor stolen, Uh, but they were still human beings in the eyes of the law. And they still had some human rights. They had the right to life. They had the right to familial integrity, which means you can't have your children sold away from you. Um, And they had the right to freedom of their children. So if you were enslaved under these Roman laws, uh, your child would not be. And so enslavement was like this um, temporary status that you could find yourself into. And you could also leave. Um, now with chattel slavery, this sort of coincides with the rise of capitalism. What is happening is that the British territories are trying to find the most economically efficient ways to extract labor from people. Um, and one of the, the worst um, sort of side effects of that is the chattel model um, becomes predominant and under chattel slavery there is no more there are no more human rights. Under chattel slavery, enslaved people essentially become legally considered as objects which means that they do not have the right to even life. Um, And many enslaved people were killed or were, were brought to the end of their lives through enslavement and there were, there were no consequences for that. Um, you did not have the right to familial integrity, you did not have the right to testify in a court of law because you were not considered a human being. Um, and worst of all, or I guess in addition to all of that, your children in perpetuity would be enslaved. Um, and this slavery was also based on skin color and African descent and visible skin color. And so you have this like race-based system of permanent enslavement for yourself and your descendants throughout the rest of time As compared to this former model which was a lot more flexible um, and allowed people to have a lot more opportunity to navigate freedoms.
0: Who laid out the idea legally or commercially of chattel slavery? Where did it originate?
1: Yeah, it's a good question Um, and historians are not in complete agreement about it. Um, so there, there are a lot of speculations. Um, a lot of people who talk about chattel slavery in what would become the U.S. specifically like to look to Virginia. Um, Jennifer Morgan is the historian you want to read for that. Um, she basically lays out the ways in which Virginia enshrined this lack of personhood in their law. Um, and what the results of this were. And it caught on in the British North American territories like Wildfire. Um, and then once the, they joined, once they became the United States, the French and Spanish territories, which had been using this Roman model this whole time, joined and, and started using chattel slavery as well.
0: But aren't we jumping ahead of ourselves a little bit? The, the Battle of Cape Lopez and the, the thinking behind the economics and legal aspects of slavery weren't determined in the United States, were they? Uh, that, uh, not that, of course, there was even in the United States the, 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 the British colonies at that point. Yeah, were, right. Were there, were there British theorists of law, of property, of commerce who were creating the, the foundations, the legal foundations of chattel slavery?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think so. I think you can look at um, many of the cases, like the Somerset case, for example, is one that historians often bring up, um, where, you know, Lloyds of London was responsible for insuring all of the slave ships that went across from the British Rural Africa Company, um, on British Royal Africa Company ships, or on private British slave ships, like from the Humphrey Morris Company. Um, and these ships were enslaved for cargo and it was argued in court that this cargo was to be treated like any other cargo. It was not to be treated like human beings on a ship. And so um, some captains did throw living enslaved people overboard uh, in order to make profits or to be able to write off for the insurance, um, their losses. And I think what happened in the Somerset case was that it was decided that that was acceptable. Um, And I think that really set the tone for how, um, how, how things kind of got the ball rolling from there.
0: To what extent were was the British public, Um, political writers, theorists, philosophers, moralists, how aware were they of the development of this thing called chattel slavery? I mean, as you say, it's obvious, you're not defending the previous form of slavery, but uh, in comparison, it actually appears much more palatable. It's still profoundly unpalatable, but more palatable than chattel slavery.
1: I think, okay, so, um... One thing that I talk about in the book that I think is really important to address here is that when you compare, I don't think there's any comparing for people who suffered enslavement, right? Like enslavement was enslavement. It was not All something right, And that goes without to, right? Um, the, the importance here is for everybody else, right? Because when you are part of a society in which one group of people has been systematically dehumanized, like stripped of legal humanity, able to be treated as an object, that, that, that affects everything in society. And so it infects the religion, it infects the economics, it affects even the language, the way people describe things um, is becomes affected by that. And the society becomes what Ira Berlin, the historian used to call a slave society, which is very different from a society with slaves, which is what the ancient Roman empire was sort of considered, right? So like when you have a slave society, essentially everything in your society rests upon the assumption and necessity for a group of people to be dehumanized. And I think that when you look at the ways in which we still dehumanize so many groups of people, right? Currently trans people, people who are not documented, um, people who are running from, from terror of, of, larger States from colonial powers. Um, we are able to dehumanize them quite easily because we already have a system in place for doing that. And our society functions on the basis of this. Uh,
0: that's a, that's quite a controversial thing. I, I, I certainly don't agree with that. Angela, you are suggesting that, uh, uh, discrimination against trans people or immigrants is, is built on the fact that America was a, at one point a chattel slave society. Where, where's the evidence for that? I mean, it, it, it's not convincing in any way.
1: <laughs> I'm suggesting that once you create a society in which it is perfectly fine to take away the humanity of one group of people, that becomes the norm of the culture, and it becomes very easy. For so, are you saying then that the norm different. of
0: the American culture has been inherited? I mean, this is another issue. I don't want to get too lost in this, but it, it, it's—I'm it, personally, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I'm not convinced. So, you're suggesting that because America pioneered chattel slavery, that it, it can never emancipate itself from from those ideas.
1: Absolutely not. I think we can. And in the book, I talk about how that might be possible. There are so many readers and thinkers who have found the way or think they found the way. I think it's worth doing that work within yourself because only by doing the self-work can you start to change the world around you as well to um, to push back against that, to push back against the dehumanization of anybody.
0: We are speaking with... Angela C. Sutton, the author of an intriguing new book, Pirates of the Slave Trade, suggesting that the Battle of Cape Lopez in 1772, 1722 was a hinge of history, defining a new age of, I guess it's, well, we, she's calling it chattel slavery, capitalist slavery. Um, Angela, you've introduced the word capitalism a couple of times. Do you see this as, as, as central? Was there capitalism um, in in a world before chattel slavery, where slavery operated, or is capitalism and chattel slavery essentially bound up with one another? In other words, in a, in a capitalist system, is chattel slavery almost inevitable and unavoidable if you're going to introduce the institution of slavery?
1: I think so, because they grew up intertwined, and so much of capitalism rests on being able to profit from the labor of other people. Um, and so stolen labor is then under capitalism, one of the most profitable forms of labor um, in theory, right?
0: You also introduced the issue, of, and, and this is obviously enormously controversial. I mean, historians, many, many historians have spent their careers arguing about it. So this is, I, again, I think it's we can get lost in this one. What about the issue of race? You introduced that earlier. Were there... in in pre-chattel slave worlds, was race significant or was it much less relevant than it became under chattel slavery?
1: It's a hard question to answer. I, I think race has always been significant in society, right? Like people have always noticed when someone looks different from them. Um, I think this is more a situation of when you get into the institutionalization of racism and when you intertwine the identity, a racial identity, which is all made up, right? Like race is not a scientific concept, it's a social concept, it's a social construct. And so when you look at the way that um, you can enshrine someone's race and tie that to um, enslavement, tie that to theft of labor and the status of permanent enslavement, that's when systemic racism begins to take root.
0: Whether in the people, so to speak, peddling chattel slavery, developing the legal, commercial, military um, foundations for it. Were they also developing theories of race and the superiority of white people over black people, the biological superiority?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I think that all kind of um, goes together because you also get um, you know, eugenicists begin to talk about at that time, you have all of this like pseudoscience, like phrenology that rests on the shape of people's heads and the, and the way that the cranium um, is, the way that the skull is necessarily, the, the brain is encased by the skull, right? Like all of these things that are like um, these minute differences that European thinkers thought that they could see or thought that they could spot. Um, I think in the book as well, we, we talk about there's a physician, John Atkins, and he traveled along with Chaloner Ogle, the naval officer. Um, and John Atkins claimed to be an anti, like claimed to be anti anti abolitionism. So like he he actually he expressed sorrow for some of the things that were being done in West Africa. Um, he displayed disgust at some of the abuses that he saw when enslaved people were being whipped and chained and being dragged out of their homes or dragged from the dungeon into the ship. Um, yet even he um, had some he 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 would muse about the nature of the differences between Africans and Europeans and really um, he it was so wild to to read his impressions of the way that he believed race worked because they went they flew in the face of contrary beliefs at the time um, he believed that there was a religious basis for it um, you know he believed in the tribe of Ham and he would talk about how there was no way that white people and black people could have a common ancestor because we were a different species entirely.
0: Angela, I I want to get to the the details and some of these characters involved in the Battle of Cape Lopez after the break. But what about the history of slavery in West Africa, particularly um, on the coast in the area that the the battle was fought pre-European colonization? I've always heard stories of the way in which uh, Arab traders or Muslim traders had pioneered slavery from Africa. Is there any truth to that? I mean, how much research did you do in that area? Yeah.
1: I mean, there's a whole, there's a whole historiography of people who looked into um, pre-colonial West African practices of slavery. Um, And I think Toby Green might be the best one to look at for that. He's over at the University of London. um, And he found that of course, enslavement was a part of West Africans' lives, just like it was a part of most cultures' lives at the time. Um, but it, there was no institutionalization of enslavement. It was certainly not based on identity. Um, and slavery, just like under the Roman model, could take many different forms and people could come into and out of enslavement pretty easily as well.
0: In other words, there was no chattel slavery. Right. Uh, and the idea of coming in and out of slavery did, did that suggest that even if you were a slave, you could buy your own freedom?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, and also you could also um, hold quite high offices. There are many people who were technically enslaved, which means that they were they had the status of like almost like children in someone else's household. But they still could become priests and warriors and soldiers and um, they could hold higher positions in society. Um, so that the enslaved status didn't stop them from pursuing things. They could also you know, have their own jobs when they were not doing what they had to do for their families.
0: We're speaking with Angela C. Sutton, the author of an intriguing new book, um, which is focused on the beginnings of chattel slavery, Pirates of the Slave Trade, the Battle of Cape Lopez, and the Birth of an American Institution. I want to thank our sponsor liberties a quarterly journal of culture and politics excellent new publication going to run a short ad for them and then we'll be back and I want to talk after the break with Angela Sutton about the details of uh, this battle battle of cape lopez and some of the individuals involved so we'll be back in a couple of seconds beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight Dot com online. Uh, we are speaking with Angela C. Sutton, the author of Pirates of the Slave Trade. Very interesting new book out next week uh, about the Battle of Cape Lopez and the birth of an American institution. She suggests that Cape Lopez, the battle in 1722 off the coast of West Africa, was a pivotal moment in world history. It inaugurated the birth of what she calls chattel slavery. Uh, particularly the American model that would shape uh, the American colonial and post-colonial experience. And to introduce us to some of the characters involved in this, uh, in this battle, some of them are quite colourful. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a man called Bartholomew Roberts, tell us about him.
1: Yeah, so um, I really love the story of Bartholomew Roberts because he was an ordinary person who got caught up in some extraordinary events. Um, and I think so many of us maybe can um, can sort of sympathize with that in a way, right? Like he was a typical Welsh sailor who, um because of because of the way the um, world events had unfolded, there was a high need for people to serve in the slave trade and a very low need for people to serve in any other maritime capacity. And so he sort of found himself working on a slave ship was one of the least enjoyable um, least desirable jobs at the time for European sailors, but one that people from the lower classes often sort of had to do um, if they wanted to have a wage. And so he finds himself on this ship and he's he's working the slave trade for a while. Um, He has navigational skills, which is more than can be said for most of the people who found themselves working on a slave ship. Um, And so because of that, he sort of gets elevated into a slightly better position. Um, And when they go to West Africa, he already knows that the pirate piracy is um, becoming a problem. By 1721, one in four ships in West Africa became pirated. Um, So as he's going, he's on the slave ship um, on the way to, uh, to the Cape Coast and beyond, he understands that the chances are pretty high and, of course, He gets pirated by Captain Davis, who's another Welsh um, pirate who um, was another fancy pirate, like to wear a wig um, that flew in the face of English sumptuary laws, Like to wear the silk gowns, the silk dresses, um, and, and dressing coats and things. Um, and when Black Bart gets pirated, he's the first one from his slave ship to jump on board. He's like, absolutely, this is much better than what I was doing before. Um, and he becomes Captain Davis's close friend because they can both speak Welsh. Um, they have this kinship, this understanding. Um, and, and from there, he he decides that he's all in. And so when Captain Davis ends up going to the island of Principe to, um, they want essentially want to do a heist on the Portuguese governor there. Uh, Black Bart is all the way in. Um, and when Captain Davis gets killed, in the process, uh, Black Bart is the one who has the idea to blow up the port and he takes a ship and stuffs it with all the gunpowder that he can, sets it on fire and pushes it into the port so that this giant wave of water fly, flows over the port in Principe, um, drowning a lot of the soldiers and, and pushing them off of the ramparts that they're perched on. Um, and he's able to get his revenge for the murder of his mentor. And from there, he he ends up becoming the pirate. Everyone votes for him and he becomes the king.
0: Um, you, and- uh, I mean, I get the sense you have a, 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 a sneaking admiration for him. Does he capture the, if this is the right word, the buccaneering spirit of the golden age of piracy, uh, a working class Welshman who rebelled against the crown and king and, 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 and uh, built his own empire of sorts?
1: Mm, Yes and no, right? because the end of the Golden Age was a little bit different than the rest of the Golden Age. So like in these beginning stages, you have pirates who are out there for adventure and for excitement, Um, but toward the end, they become very nihilistic and disillusioned because Back before, in the beginning of the Golden Age, in the Caribbean, Caribbean governors would allow pirates to stay in their ports and behave like de facto navies because there wasn't enough naval power from Europe to cover what the Caribbean governors needed for safety. And so pirates would perform that function for
0: them. But what then, was it? I'm mean, sorry to jump in. Uh, I apologize, <laughs> Andrew, if I'm interrupting. Uh, this word pirate gets thrown around a lot. What does it mean in your mind?
1: Uh, sure, it has different meanings at, at, at different time periods, right? So in this time period, A pirate is someone who takes to the seas uh with the attempt with the intention to rob um and to take things from other people and they have no permissions or no naval backing um for this they just take the personal decision to do this
0: but then you also had state subsidized pirates like drake
1: yeah of course yeah and those were uh privateers it's essentially piracy with a permission slip from your empire um and the understanding is that of course you don't attack ships who have the flag of your empire that is that is hiring you to be a pirate. It's the only difference.
0: Do you think that uh, back then, perhaps another word to describe pirates is terrorists? This is a word that gets thrown around a lot these days. Again, a word that doesn't have a lot of meaning.
1: I don't think so. Um, Of course, I'm not a a scholar of terrorism, um, but to my understanding, terrorist um, has a political connotation and pirates um, Pirates didn't have as many political aims, certainly not at the end of the golden age. Their aims were um they're motivated more by a rage and a need to stay alive and an understanding that the world around them was changing in a way that didn't include them. And so they had nowhere else to go. And so all of their behaviors were by that. Right.
0: So personal enrichment, personal power, personal survival. They they weren't thinking politically. And so so we have black, uh, so we have black bar, and then we have the opposite of Black Bart, uh, a man called Sir Chaloner Ogle. Is he what one would expect of, a, of somebody called <laughs> Chaloner Ogle?
1: Absolutely. And I wouldn't say he's the opposite of Black Bart. He's really the foil of Black Bart. I think Black Bart, um, in a way, wished that he could have become someone like Chaloner Ogle. And I think Chaloner Ogle, in a way, wished that he could have one tenth of the persona that Black Bart had. Um, and the two of them played this cat and mouse game for a year and a half, chasing each other around West Africa. Um, And of course, it took so long because Black Bart was sailing directly behind Chaloner Ogle the whole time and Ogle never thought to look behind him.
0: No, that wasn't very smart. So what were they (laughs) fighting over?
1: Uh, Well, Chaloner Ogle was... um, it was really locked in this um, this competition with the other uh, na- his naval peers who he had grown up with. You know, his family was sort of of lesser nobility, and he really wanted to uh, become an admiral. He had these amazing career aspirations. He had hunted down pirates before in um, the spanish succession War, and now he he really wanted to take this opportunity to really eradicate piracy from West Africa, allow the British to retain supremacy of the trade, and then receive all of the glory and the promotions that would come from that. And so it wasn't necessarily a personal mandate against Bart it's just that Bart stood in the way of his glory and so he had to be destroyed
0: so was he employed by the British state he was paid mm-hmm. by the British state and his ships yeah. were the ships of the British state that's um, right. was, was the battle of Cape Lopez then essentially a battle between Black Bart and, and Ogle
1: mm-hmm. yeah I would say so
0: and tell us about the battle itself was it remarkable or, or just another naval battle how many ships were involved <laughs>
1: Um, hard to say. Black Bart had several, but most of them were not um not in sailing, not not able to be sailed. And the, the battle was really sort of took part in two parts because Challenger Ogle by this time his so his sailors had had, had a severe case of yellow fever when they were in, in Principe following Black Bart. Um and so most of his sailors were wiped out and he had to take on whoever had been pirated but rejected by the pirates, essentially. So like Chaloner Ogle is finding these ships that had been taken by Black Bart, the ones that were not good enough were left behind, along with landlubbers, people who didn't have any sailing experience, they were just left on those ships. So Ogle had to collect the dregs of everybody who had been wronged by Black Bart in West Africa and then train them on the spot to become sailors so that he could engage in this naval battle. And so he wasn't at his best. Black Mart also wasn't at his best because he had been running for a long time and his pirates, some of them had betrayed him and some of them had you know, run off and tried to do their own thing and had stolen everything from him. And he was um, the loose leader of this confederation of pirates. So there were like two big ships that were able to function really well. And then he had a handful of other pirated ships that they were fixing up in Cape Lopez at the time. Cape Lopez was like at the, at the mouth of this estuary. So there were lots of hiding places and all the ships were on land and they were trying to scrape the barnacles free and make them seaworthy again. And so uh, when Ogle found Black Bart, he saw Black Bart before Bart saw him. And so Ogle made a plan with all of his sailors um, and he decided that they would just send one ship out at first and um, with the false flag so that Black Bart's team would hopefully go after him. And that's what happened. Half of Black Bart's men were like, ooh, another ship will take it. And they went after Ogle and Ogle led them out into the middle of the ocean where there was no one that could help them and then engage them in, in the battle. And then the second half came looking for the first. And that's when Ogle was able to pounce again.
0: And then there's a third character you also introduce in the book, are lots of other characters, a, a man called uh, John or Jan Conny. Tell us about him and why he's significant in all this.
1: I'm sorry, could you repeat that, please? The connection was Uh, lost.
0: uh, You introduce uh, a third character, Jan Conny, uh, who uh, adds another dimension to, to your narrative
1: yes and he really is uh the star of the book i think um i know it's a pirate book and so everyone's always focused on the pirate but um john connie was really one of the most fascinating people and he had he had a million names honestly like he he gave everyone a different name and he he dealt with every type of European and African who was on the coast at the time. So pirates, privateers, smugglers, people from the West India Company, from the British Africa Company, the Swedes, well, he he knew them all. Um, and because of his like advantageous little place on the on Cape Coast, uh, sorry, on Cape Three Points. And so like he, he knew everybody. He was called different names by different people. Um, so we just call him John Connie in the book to keep it simple. And John Connie was incredibly brilliant. And he had spent his entire life watching his family members deal with different groups of Europeans and get summarily screwed. And so John Connie sort of understands intrinsically what Europeans are after when they come to him. And he understands how he can pit Europeans against one another in order for them to keep their attention on each other and not on him. And so he's able to make a lot of determinations that keep his people safe for quite a long time until, of course, they don't. And it's the end of the Battle of Cape Lopez that makes that really difficult for him. Um, but he knew Black Bart, he knew Black Bart's sailors. And in fact, um, several of the naval officers who were with Chaloner Ogle, when Chaloner Ogle stops and meets John Connie, they sneak off and stay with John Connie because they don't want to be part of the naval ship anymore.
0: Had uh, I know this is perhaps a rather silly question, but had... Black Bart won the battle of Cocolat Lopez, presumably Jan Connie wouldn't have been unhappy or would he have been? I mean, these were both slave traders of one kind or another.
1: Right. No, I think he would have been happy, though, because the discord in West Africa really served John Connie. Like he was... Um, He was incredibly aware that his position was most safe when Europeans were focusing on one another, but once the pirate threat had been removed, then Europeans had the opportunity to focus on their relationships with West Africans, Um, and that's where it became dangerous because John Connie did not consent to being subordinate to Europeans, Um, and so when they tried to uh, force him to fit into what it is that they wanted from him in terms of a a trading partner. Um, that's when things became really dangerous for him and his people.
0: And how did they come out of the battle?
1: Uh, so they. Um, the ba- they were fine. The battle was a little further away from them. But right after the battle, all the pirates were gone. And that's when all the eyes of the British and the Dutch started to focus on John Connie, because the Dutch had been trying to find a way to um to unseat him for a long time. Like there, there was a long, long enmity between the Dutch and John Connie's people, the Ahanta. And so... um. Yeah, you know, there was one moment where they tried to take his castle and he beheads them all, um, boils down their heads, and uses their skulls as drinking vessels whenever a European comes to visit as a way of showing them, like, this is what happens when you cross me. And so he really had his like persona down pat, right? Like, he knew exactly how to present himself. Um, But after the Battle of Cape Lopez, the Dutch were free to come in and begin to attack him in earnest because the pirates weren't in the way. Um, And that's when John Connie begins to find himself in a precarious position. Plus, challenger ogle on the way back from the battle of cape lopez ends up trading munitions and he gives the people the african people on the ground who are trying to unseat john connie a really big load of weapons in order to do that
0: it's a remarkable story uh I, i guess everybody loses except for ogle or the british state uh let's end with a reference to what you call in your book the birth of an american institution how quickly did this did the impact of lopez play out in america
1: yeah um almost immediately so when you go on to the slave voyages database, which is a collection of um, most, I wouldn't say all, we're always collecting, right? Historians are always finding new ships, but it's a collection of most of the slave ship voyages that made it from Africa into the Americas. Um, And when you look at the numbers that were pulled out of specifically that region of West Africa and into the British North American territories, they began to expand exponentially and they do not let up. Like it's it's almost immediate.
0: And, And finally, Angela, I mean, obviously, this is in some ways a labor of love. Not that you love the slave trade, but the history of the slave trade. What does it teach us about today? We touched on it earlier um, on the the kind of institutions that developed in America. But what did the writing and research for your book, Pirates of the Slave Trade, teach you about the, the various debates in America, even today, about slavery, reparations, forgiveness, and so on and so forth?
1: Yeah, thank you. It's a huge question. Um, so something that uh, I always knew, but that really struck me when I was doing the research for this book is that almost all of the research, like virtually 99.9% of it um, was written by Europeans at the time um, and was preserved in European archives. And that's where I had to go to, to write this book. Um, The voices of Africans are, of course, almost gone. Um, There's a little bit of paraphrasing, that's it, there's one letter from an African king to the king of Sweden, that's all I got. Um, And so I had to triangulate sources, had to incorporate archaeological evidence, had to incorporate geography, had to think about the weather patterns and what else was going on at the time to be able to sort of tease out um, what possible motivations Africans in this book could have had and how the enslaved were affected by Battle of Cape Lopez and all of the aftermath that comes from it. And so really the biggest lesson for me was just realizing that there's so much impoverishment when it comes to the, the subject of history because the victors have written the history and they've excluded everything that really could give us a fuller view of what happened. Um, and that has taught me to maybe be a little bit more humble and tread a little bit more softly when it comes to Um, Attesting everything that I think I know, because everything I think I know has been mediated by what was was termed desirable to be written, what was termed desirable to be saved in an archive, Um, and it certainly wasn't the words of Africans, of Indigenous people, of any of the people that we are trying to find out about now.